The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. All right, Titus. We've been in this series in Titus. Uh, we, are, we are learning that our beliefs, our doctrine, shapes our affections or our devotion, right? And therefore, trickles into and affects the way that we live, our behaviors, our actions, our attitudes, all that kind of stuff. Last week, we looked at the doctrine of grace, God's unmerited favor, which has appeared to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you and I have received the grace of God through Christ's finished work, it should change us. It should change us. Not only does that grace we saw last week um, save us and train us to pursue godliness as individuals within the Christian community, but grace also purifies us as a community. Grace um, transforms us into a people who imperfectly, but tangibly, put something of the beauty and the glory uh, and the, the, the reality of God's grace on display for the world to see. And so this last part of the letter that Paul is writing here is focused on what it looks like to work out this grace in society. And it comes by way of reminder. How many of you need reminders? How many of you need more reminders the older you get? <laughs> yeah. That's all the Bible is, right? It's a big reminder. In fact, even, um, I mean, we, we sang it here, we're prone to wander, right? We're prone to wander. So we need these reminders of who God is and what God has done for us to, to motivate us to live differently in, in light of who he is. Um, remembering is a constant theme in the Bible. I think at least 25 times in the Old Testament, God's people are commanded to remember what he has done for them. And we're gonna see some, something similar here in Titus. Now, what I'd like to do is I wanna start in chapter two, verse 11, which we covered last week, but I'm gonna read into chapter three because I wanna give us context for what we're gonna look at in chapter three. So if you're in your Bible, um, follow along with me as I read starting in chapter two, verse 11. Um, and we'll read down to chapter three, verse eight. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to be together in your presence. And Lord, um, I don't know what the people in this room have carried in with them today. Um, Some, I'm sure, riding high on clouds of joy and some in the pit of despair and everything in between. You know our hearts. You know our struggles. You know our sins. You know our fears. And so I pray that you, the great physician, would, would do the work that only you can do, which is to, to carefully, lovingly, gentle, gently wield the, the scalpel um, to cut away the things that harm us, to heal the brokenness within us, to remind us of who you are, of what you have done for us, of who we are in Christ that we might be a healed and a whole people who by your grace can live out the commands, the instructions that you have left behind for us. Holy Spirit, we need you. Please fill me as I preach and please fill these people as they listen that we might not just be hearers of the word but doers also for your glory and for our good. We ask this all in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. Now, if you remember, remember, here we are already. Um, Paul was writing this letter to Titus. Titus uh, was a traveling companion of Paul. When they went to the island of Crete, Paul preached the gospel, made some disciples, and then left Titus behind. And Titus's job is to bring order and stability to these congregations in Crete, to appoint healthy leadership. Elders in these fledgling churches that are made up of Cretans, right? Remember, Cretans, many of them were Roman exiles. Um, The the island of Crete itself was just full of all kinds of of wickedness. But the grace of God had appeared to them. As this good news of Jesus was proclaimed, people's hearts and lives were changed. And that same grace was reorienting every aspect of these people's lives and forming a community, They were Christians now. A peculiar people. That's how the King James renders chapter 2, verse 14, when it says uh, that they are a people for for his own possession. It's a a peculiar people, a treasured people. They They are made into God's treasured possession. They belong to God. They were citizens of heaven. But they were still on Crete. They were still in and among the culture of Crete. And As chapter one and two explain to us, here are just a few descriptions of the culture of Crete. The people were insubordinate, deceitful, disobedient, undignified, unrestrained, irreverent, impure, argumentative, like South Carolinians. (laughs) 
I had to, sorry, I had to. So the question is, what kind of people should Christians strive to become by God's grace as a witness to the people of Crete of their new identity in Jesus Christ? What kind of people are they called to be? So the first thing I want you to see here, if you're a note taker, is our present witness. Our present witness. And Paul says to them, he says to Titus, remind them, Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. In a phrase, Paul says to Titus, remind them to be a people who are marked by holiness and humility. Holiness and humility. So the best apologetic for the Christian faith is not an argument, but it's a people. But that's also the worst apologetic for the Christian church sometimes, isn't it? A people. Because we are known by our works. We are known by our deeds, by our conduct, our behavior. Now, Paul's um, charge here is that the church the Christian church is, is to be a people who do not reflect the culture of the world. Neither is it to be a people who protest the culture of the world, but a people who live honorably and honor Christ in the world. That's different. And he begins with saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This has primarily in this context to do with governmental authorities. And I have to believe that as soon as this letter was read among the Cretans, they would have gone, whoa, time out. What now? Crete was a culture that was constantly on like simmering with political discontent, ready to boil over at any moment, full of people who are insubordinate and contrary, right? And so Paul says, hey, remember, you need to be submissive and obedient to the governing authorities. And they're going, "Um, excuse me, Paul, do you know who our emperor is right now? It's Nero. You ever heard of that guy, how crazy that fool is? We're supposed to be submissive to him? And Paul would say, yeah. Now, there's a line, and I think if, if you walked with Jesus for a while, you know this. Anytime an authority figure, whether it be political or otherwise, is forcing you or, or leading you to do something that goes against the laws of God, you can resist that authority. We obey God, not man. But, Paul says this to the Romans, that, that governing authorities are instituted by God himself. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, says that we are to be subject to authorities, whether emperors or governors. Why? Because they're all good and right all the time? No. No. But because it honors God to do so. So he's saying here, you're supposed to submit and, and, and be obedient to rulers and authorities, including Nero, including the Roman emperor, but also, as we've seen in the text, masters or bosses. He has said to wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And, and what's Titus's role? To install leaders, elders in the church. And so this applies to them as well, that you're supposed to honor, submit to, and be obedient to the, the leaders, the, the pastors within the congregation. 
The, the author of Hebrews will, will remind us of that in Hebrews chapter 13. Be submissive to your elders because they are leading you and they have to give an account before God for your soul. Make it a joy for them. Now, I just want to say thank you because it's a joy to lead this congregation and all the elders agree with me that you are a people who are a joy to lead. So thank you. Thank you for your humility, for your love, for your prayers, for me and for the rest of the elders. It is a joy to lead this congregation. Not always, we're, we're supposed to submit, not always because those leaders or authorities are always good or right, but because it honors the Lord to do so. Then he says to be ready for every good work. Now we're gonna talk, about more, talk more about this next week, so I'm not gonna touch on it very much other than we are to be a people who are constantly on the lookout for needs that we can meet in the name of Jesus that this is a way that we can put our faith into action and demonstrate the goodness and kindness of God to the world is to actually take care of needs in our community. Then he says this, to speak evil of no one. No one. Not even them. <laughs> Avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. That word perfect courtesy can sometimes be translated as humility. Here's what he's saying, no slander, no gossip of anyone. Avoid fights, be gentle, be humble. Uh, that word courtesy in, in uh, Galatians 5 is translated as gentleness. It's one of the fruit of the spirit. In Colossians 3, it's translated as meekness, which is not weakness, but it's strength restrained to all people. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in the original language, all <clears throat> means all. <laughs> Everyone. Which means we are to, we are to, we, we are to honor all people. Those who disagree with us. Those with whom we disagree. Even those who would hate and despise us. We are to speak evil of no one, to avoid fights and quarrels, to be gentle and humble and show perfect courtesy to all people. Um, you remember in the Gospels when Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, you go with them an extra? You remember that? Do you know where that comes from? Uh, in, in the first century, under Roman authority, a Roman soldier could tap you on the shoulder, you know, with their bayonet or their sword, and force you, as a Jew, to carry all of their gear for one mile. They had mile markers set up, and so they would come to you and they'd say, you, if you were 12 years of age or older, they could force you to carry all that gear of the Roman soldier for one mile. You had to do it. If you didn't, you would be under the penalty of death, okay? So Jesus says, hey, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go that mile, and at the end of that mile go, how about another? Shall we go one more? And you're thinking, are you crazy? No, he's God. Grace creates a new kind of community coming down from above that runs counter to the current of the world we live in. One author put it this way. We are, the church, is a model home of the new neighborhood that Jesus is building and will last forever. So given that high calling, you and I cannot settle 
for responding to the crazy of the world with the world's crazy. We are salt and light, brothers and sisters. We're to live differently in this present age as a reflection of what grace has done for us. So before we move on, how's that hitting you? <laughs> Is there any conviction in the room for ways in which we might not be honoring the Lord in the way that we respond to this present world that we live in? Ways in which we are not submissive, not obedient, not honoring, where we do speak evil of others that we disagree with. This is challenging stuff, friends. So that's our present witness. The question that has to surface then is why should we be a people who seek to live this way? Why should we seek to be marked by holiness and humility in this crazy world? And Paul gives us the answer in verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The next thing I want you to take note of here is our past wandering. I'm so glad we sang that song this morning. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? He sought us out in our wandering. Now, here's what I want to say. I know that some of you grew up in the church. You can't remember a day that you didn't go to Sunday school and VBS and, you know, you were essentially birthed and they spanked your bottom on the altar. You know, that's like you've just been around the entire time. And there's others of you that were like axe-wielding meth heads and, you know, just got saved in the last year or so. And praise God for that too. But sometimes those of us who grew up in the church, and I'm not one of them, but I'm just including all of you, um, we don't remember what it was like to not walk with the Lord. We don't remember what it was like to, to, um, to have been saved. And I've said this a lot of times, but some of us have that experience of, you know, walking in darkness and then like the floodlights come on and all of a sudden we're like, oh, Jesus is real and I believe in him. And then others of you, it's more like that dimmer switch and just slowly over the course of your life, things have gotten more bright and more clear and you've realized one day, I think I love Jesus. I don't know how it happened or when, right? And so we have that juxtaposition. But it is good and healthy for us from time to time to reflect back on who we were before Christ, to remember the darkness. Now, some of you are artists and musicians and Enneagram fours, and you are morbidly introspective and, and probably do this too much, okay? But it's healthy for all of us to think back on, to reflect on who we were, to see the, the difference that Christ has made in our lives. And so this is what Paul is trying to get this people to remember. Why should we seek to live lives as a people that are marked by holiness and humility? Because we used to be just like the world. But grace has made all the difference for us. And Paul includes himself here, doesn't he? For we ourselves were once foolish. Now, if you know Paul's story, he was a religious zealot. According to Judaism, he was crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. There was the little matter of killing Christians. But other than that, he was doing awesome, you know? And, and even he would say, I was a fool. E even though outwardly he looked upright and, and, and like a model citizen, he knew on the inside he was a Cretan. A liar, an evil beast, a lazy glutton, as we saw from chapter one. And Paul did not just get his act together one day. 
Paul did not wake up one day and you go, you know what? Uh, I really think Jesus might be real. I'm going to follow him now. Jesus had to literally knock him off his high horse and tell him, I'm God, you're not, follow me. And Paul was like, okay, can I have my sight back, please? So he says, we, we, were, we were foolish. Now, foolish does not mean stupid. A fool, according to the Bible, is someone who's unwilling to listen to wisdom. Someone who lives as if this world is all there is, they do not live as though God exists. And I have news for you. You don't have to be an atheist to live like God doesn't exist. Christians do it every single day. But our pride proves our folly. He says we were disobedient. Disobedience is unwilling to heed God's words. Well, of course, if you don't believe that God exists and you don't listen to wisdom, you're not going to heed his words. And so we're all guilty of sins of commission, doing, saying, believing things we shouldn't, and sins of omission, not doing or believing things that we should. He says we were led astray. We were deceived. We were, we were drifting towards whatever seemed best to our darkened minds. In other words, most of us kind of wandered through life like an insolent toddler. And I know you've all, all of you who've had toddlers have had insolent toddlers. <laughs> I've raised three myself. And, you know, what I mean by that is you go, hey, let daddy help you with that. No, I got it. Right? And then what happens? <laughs> Spill it all over. Hey, can I play with that toy? It's my toy. Well, didn't I buy that for you? But it's mine. You see? That's, that's every single one of us in a heart, at the heart level. We, we, we sing it well. There's a, a song we sang last week um, called Grace and Grace Alone. And one of the lines says, I thought I knew the way on my own. Head full of rocks and a heart full of stone. That is all of us apart from Christ. And one of the lies of the world that we live in is that to, to reject God and his laws in our lives is actually what leads us to freedom. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because what's the next thing he points out here? Let astray slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. When we, when we disregard the wisdom of God, we disregard the laws of God, the commands of God, the word of God, we, we enslave ourselves to passions and pleasures. And boy, there are many. And every one of them is a tyrant. And the more we sought after those pleasures and passions, the more enslaved we became to them, the less satisfied we were by them, but the more they had their hands around our neck. And some of you right now in this very room are within your last couple of breaths because your sin is choking you to death. And today's the day that you finally raise your hands and say, I've had enough. Jesus, save me. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated and hating, no grace, no compassion, no empathy, no forgiveness, all kinds of relational discord because in our sin we are so curved in on ourselves. 
do you remember, believer, who you were before Christ? It is good sometimes to feel the sting of who we were apart from his grace. I got saved when I was about, I think I was 15, going into my sophomore year of high school, about to turn 16. And look, at, I, by many standards, I was a good kid, right? Like, I made good grades. I didn't party. I obeyed my parents, mostly. Um, but here's the thing. I was so full of pride and arrogance, I judged everyone that I laid eyes on because I knew that I was better than they were. I was smarter, I could figure stuff out, and they were idiots. My dad introduced me to pornography at five years old, and it mastered me. My parents had been going through a, a rough time, and uh, my, my, they started going to this little Southern Baptist church near our house, Berea Baptist Church, some of you might have heard of it, off uh, Riceville Road. And I had no concern at all for the things of God. I did not want to be there. But I finally went to get my parents off my back. And I heard a 22-year-old youth pastor talk about John 3, 16, and how all of us are sinners, but God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I don't know what it was other than the Holy Spirit, but he awakened my soul and I gave my life to Christ that day. And did all of my sin and shame and stuff go away overnight? It did not. But I knew that I was a different person. I knew that I'd been changed. And by his grace over the course of 20 some odd years now, the things that once had a stranglehold on me, those bonds have been broken. Do you remember who you were before Christ? The hurtful words that you wish you could take back. Refusing to listen to sound advice. People that we have let into our lives who we knew were no good for us. And it proved true. Our discontentment, our jealousy, our pride, our selfishness, our desire for control, our desire for comfort, our desire for security, unforgiveness, judgmentalism, addictions, compulsions, things that we kept hidden in the darkness that owned us. See, reflecting on the darkness and just how dark it actually was makes the light even more beautiful. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. So let's take a deep breath. We're all in, in a moment of sadness because we're remembering who we were apart from Christ. Now look at verse four. But there's no better conjunction in all the world, friends. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen, right? This is like beautiful. Now, 
it, it has been said, there's no proof for this, but verses three to seven are all one sentence in the Greek language. And many people have speculated that this is sort of doctrinal, some sort of creedal statement that was repeated by the church, right? So sort of like how we do the Lord's Prayer or the Nicene Creed, that this was like an early creed, okay? And it is so jam-packed full of rich doctrine and theological truth that I'm gonna have a hard time unpacking it in the nine minutes I have left, but I'm gonna try, okay? It's such good news. What was God's response to us in our sin, our rebellion, our failure, and our folly? God appeared, but not in wrath. In goodness and in loving kindness, he came. Another way of saying that we saw last week, that the grace of God appeared, it dawned on us. We had an epiphany, grace. Now listen, if you've read Titus with us, it can feel a bit rulesy, can't it? There's a lot of lists. And it can feel as you're reading it as though there's just this sort of, Paul's giving us these sort of moral imperatives, like here, here's the stuff to do if you wanna be right with God. But I want you to see how he has sandwiched even this, um, these statements here in chapter three with the gospel. That's why I started in chapter two, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. And now in chapter three, when the loving, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our savior appeared. Isn't that amazing? And this is one of the tricks to reading Paul is that his imperatives are always either um, preceded by or followed by, or sometimes both, indicatives. So when Paul gives you rules to live by, when Paul gives you instructions, it's either followed or preceded by, or sometimes both, the good news of Christ. Here's what Jesus has done. Here's the indicatives. Here's what's been done for you in Jesus. Live this way. Does it make sense? So he, he never gives you just a list of rules, ever, 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 ever. If you look behind or before, you will find the gospel. And it's such good news. He saved us, he says, not because we deserved it, not because of any inherent goodness in us or our works, okay? I know some of you wanna put your like perfect Sunday school attendance record before the Lord and he goes, Pfft. Some of you read the Bible every single day of your lives since you became, okay, praise God for that. That's not what makes you righteous. He just said, we were all fools, disobedient, slaves to various passions. That includes every single one of us. Even those of us who have grown up largely morally good. This is the same guy, Paul, who in Philippians chapter three, says, according, as to righteousness, according to the law, I was blameless. So you want to go toe to toe in religious righteousness before Paul? He's beat you every time. But he recognized that all his attempts at righteousness, all of his manufactured goodness to, to sort of prove himself before God was dung or in Isaiah's words, filthy menstrual rags. Every single attempt to be good apart from the grace of God is worth nothing to God. He has saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, because we don't have any of our own, but according to his own mercy. Now, if grace is getting 
what we don't deserve, then mercy is not getting what we do deserve. James says, if you have broken one command, you've broken them all. Which means all of us have broken at least one command. And, and even if you said you obeyed all the others, I know you disobeyed your mama and daddy. <laughs> and if we've broken one, we've broken them all, which makes all of us unrighteous and all of us guilty and worthy of the wrath of God. But in mercy, God is rich in mercy. Um, Ephesians 2 lays this out very similarly, right? He says that we were, um, we were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, right? Given over to the passions of our flesh and we were enemies of God, children of wrath. But then he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. That's exactly what he's saying here. He's rich in mercy. He poured his mercy out upon us through Jesus and, and uh, gave us regeneration, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration means that we were born again. And just as you had nothing to do with your first birth, you had nothing to do with your second birth. We're spiritually made alive by God. It's the Holy Spirit who came upon us and awakened our dead and sleepy souls to give us eyes to see the beauty of his glory, to give us eyes to see the reality of who Jesus is, who awakened us enough to respond with repentance and faith. It's a work of the Spirit in us. We are dead in our sins and trespasses and made alive by God's grace. He has regenerated us. He renews us. Our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our acts are constantly in Revived and reoriented by the power of God's spirit within us. By the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior, verse seven, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Real quickly here, um, justified means we are declared forgiven and declared righteous, okay? Um, you can think of it like this. Some people say justification is just as if I never sinned, and that's half right. You are declared just as if you never sinned and just as if you always perfectly obeyed, okay? Uh, stupid analogy, but let's say we walk into the bank together and you are drowning in a mountain of debt, I know that that's like hard to believe, but let's just say that you're drowning in a mountain of debt and you go to your banker and you're like, hey, I got nothing to pay these bills with. And he goes, hey, you know what? It's okay because a benefactor came in and, and told us about you and your situation and um, paid all your debts, your mortgage, your student loans, your car, all of it. Um, you have zero debt. You would walk out of that bank rejoicing, Right? but also broke. And in order to stay out of debt in the future, who's it up to? You. Don't be dumb, stay out of debt, right? Okay, that's good, but that's not great because how many of us starting at, you know, broke zero are gonna be able to stay out of debt and make it in this world? Okay, the gospel says, you walk into that bank and the banker says, hey, a benefactor has paid all your debt, but also he gave us this card and this card has access to his wealth, which is unlimited. And so you can go into the world and you can charge this card for whatever you need. 
and you will never, you will never run up the credit limit. You have been credited with the full bank account of your benefactor. That's different, isn't it? Would you then go immediately to the Ferrari store? No, you wouldn't. If you really understand what's been given to you, you would not squander it. You would not waste it. Okay, so we have, our debt has been paid by Jesus, but we have also been credited with the righteousness of Jesus. His perfect record credited to us so that when God looks at you, he not only sees no sin, he sees perfect righteousness because of Jesus. Now that's some good news. That's some good news worth getting behind. We are heirs uh, according to eternal life. God delights in, accepts, and rejoices over you, you, even you, the same way he does his own son. The only thing that we have contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Now, if Jesus Christ has done all of that for us, what kind of people ought we to be in this world? a people devoted to putting on display something of the beauty and the reality of his grace in this world through our good works. And we're gonna talk about that more next week. As we wrap up, I got one quote from Spurgeon. You know I can't go a sermon without quoting Spurgeon, but I think it's important. And then I'll have three questions for you and we'll get ready to respond. Here's what Spurgeon says in reference to this passage. Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with the rope around his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven, for, forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. If, if Jesus has done this for us, what kind of people ought we to be? A people who live honorably in this world to honor Christ. We don't, we don't reflect the world we live in. We don't protest the world we live in, but we live to honor Christ. We live honorably in this world for his glory and for the good of others. Amen? Easy to say, hard to do. Now, as we wrap up, I've got three questions I want to put up on the screen for you. You can write these down as they come or take a picture of the screen when they're all up. Um, I, I would love you to just, you know, take some time personally and maybe even, um, you know, with your spouse or significant other friend, uh, community group, whatever, to, uh, to process these questions. First one is this. Where do I struggle to represent Christ in holiness and humility in this cultural climate? Where, where do I struggle? Where, where am I more prone to reflect the crazy of the world with its own crazy, right? Um, evil speech, slander, gossip, just complaining endlessly on social media about the political state of this country. I know I'm not speaking to anyone in this room right now. Where do I struggle to represent Christ in holiness and humility in this world that we live in? 
What are, where, where are a few areas you could name? And just submit those to the Lord. Lord, I want to honor you. This world is so crazy. <laughs> Help me. You know? We've got a series coming up uh, in a few weeks here on culture. And I hope that you'll be here for that. We're going to address a lot of these issues. Um, I'm calling it Shifting Sands, Navigating Cultural Change. Um, anyway, second question. Who was I before Christ saved me? What defined my life? Now, as I said, some of you, you know exactly who you were. You're almost haunted by it every single day. And there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. But it's good to think back on who you were so that you can remember and be humbled by the grace of God in your life. Others of you have no recollection of what it was like to not walk with Jesus, but you can do this. You can remember particular sins, behavior patterns, attitudes, thoughts, fears that you have walked in that the Lord has delivered you from. And praise God for that. So as you reflect back on, you might not be able to remember a time before Christ, but you can remember sins and struggles and hangups that you had that he has saved you from, that he's delivered you from. And as you reflect on that, it brings humility and it brings gratitude. And listen, some of you today might not be Christians and today's the day of salvation. Right in your seat, all you have to do is say, Jesus, save me. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of battling these compulsions and sins on my own. I, I simply want to be saved. I acknowledge that you are God and I need a savior. Please save me. I turn away from my sin. I turn to you and he will right there in your seat save you. But don't walk out of here without letting somebody know. I would love to hear about it. I'd love to pray for you. Um, but, but, but don't walk out of here without knowing that you can be not only forgiven, but credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The bonds of sin broken. And the last question, how does the great work of Jesus on my behalf motivate me to live an honorable life for his glory? Maybe just reread this passage, reread this creedal statement, verses three to seven, on all that Jesus has done for us, his goodness and loving kindness, saving us, not because of righteousness, but according to mercy, regenerating us, renewing us, pouring out richly his grace upon us, justifying us, making us heirs, giving us eternal life. Reflect on that. How does Jesus' great work for you, for me, motivate us to live as an honorable people for his glory? All right, we'll leave these questions up on the screen for you. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna have just a moment of silence for you to reflect quietly. And then I'll invite you to the communion tables. And if you're new around here, we, we practice communion weekly um, as a reminder. We just talked about reminders. This is another reminder of the gospel. That Jesus' body was broken for us to make us whole. That his blood was spilled for us to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. To remind us that there's a day coming when we will feast with our Savior. And he is even now preparing the table for us, so to speak. And one day he will return to make all things new and we will feast with him forever. And so we come to these tables in faith. We come in repentance. 
We, we come in gratitude, we come in joy, and we come as followers of Jesus, as those who have surrendered our lives to the grace and mercy of Christ. So if you're not a Christian, you can stay seated. If you are a Christian, but you don't feel like participating in this, that's okay. This is a, a, an, a, it's offered to be received, it's not required. You can just stay seated. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who do want to partake in this means of grace, um, we'll start at the back row. You'll come down uh, in, in one of these lines, take a piece of the bread, remembering the body of Christ, dipping into the juice or the wine, whatever your conscience allows, in remembrance of his blood for, spilled for you. You can make your way back up uh, to, to your seats. Um, there are black boxes in the back, so if you want to give a financial offering, um, give, you can do that in those boxes if you don't give online. Um, if you have a prayer request, the back of that Connect card can be used for prayers. You can drop that in the box as well, and we'll pray for you. Um, so let's have a moment of silence after I pray, and then when I get up to the table, that'll be the signal for you, those of you in the back that the tables are open. We'll spend a few minutes taking communion, receiving communion together, and then we'll sing a couple songs and remember the gospel through song as well. Father, what a gift your word is to us. Thank you for preserving your holy scripture for thousands of years so that here in 2023, we could sit in this air-conditioned room with a paper or a digital copy of the Bible in our hands. And by your spirit, you speak to our souls, to those deepest places of longing, of fear, of shame. And you speak words of kindness, of grace, of mercy over us. What a gift. What a gift. So as we have received your grace through the preaching of the word, we now receive your grace through communion. And um, Lord, as we feast on this bread and cup, we want to remember your sacrifice for us and the promise that we are heirs and have eternal life. We will one day be with you. I pray right now that if there's anyone in the room who is even right now on the fence about following Jesus, that you would make very clear to them that you are calling them into the fold this morning, that they would walk away from sin and pursue a life with Jesus, that by your spirit, you would make them alive. You would regenerate them even as they sit. We celebrate that this morning. Lord, be kind, be gracious to us as we sit in silence now, as we reflect and uh, as we come to these tables, let us come with gratitude and joy. And as we sing, Lord, may you be honored and glorified. And we, may we be filled with joy in your presence. We love you. We thank you for Jesus and for the word of God. We ask your blessing uh, in his name and by the power of the spirit. Amen. Let's be still just for a minute.